Welcome to Famous Lost Words. It's a guided tour through one of the most amazing interview archives in the rock and roll universe. Thanks to the creator of the show, Mr. Tom Jokic. Well, sure, and you're welcome. However, there is one thing I want to say. This episode is particularly Christopher heavy, and I'm not sure mm. I like it. But but in <laughs> It'll actual, pass. But in actual honesty, this is amazing. You've got two amazing interviews in here, including your very famous interview with George Harrison. One of these clips has been viewed a ton of times, and we'll talk about the number of times later on when we talk mm-hmm. about this artist, and it's George Harrison. And it's simply amazing. He has some great moments, some funny moments, some very poignant moments, and some very pointed moments in this interview with George Harrison from 1988, I believe. Okay, yeah. great. I, I love his candor. It, he doesn't give the canned answers that so many big stars do. You can see him in the moment considering and thinking about the answer he's going to give. Yes, and he's got that smirk every once in a while when he's oh, no- yeah. when he knows he's being a little bit of a naughty boy in what he's a saying. cheeky. Yes. He is. And as if we don't have enough, Christopher, there's your conversation, and it's an excellent conversation with Bill Wyman, formerly of the Rolling Stones, but he was in the Stones at the time. It's a great conversation, a lot of fun, a lot of content in this. Looking forward to it. Tom, you know, probably the most amazing moment of my career as an interviewer came... On a March day in the year 1988, when George Harrison came to Much for a live interview. Oh, my God. I cannot imagine what that was like for you. And knowing that another one of your highlights was meeting and interviewing Paul McCartney and how nice he was to you. Yeah, that came later. Oh, I see. So this was the first time, you know, meeting one of the Beatles Mm -hmm. and it being live. There was something about that, too, that gave it some extra excitement. And, you know, I've heard these clips And I've seen these clips. And one of the things that strikes me is that George is both in a very playful mood, but he's got that mischievousness and just a touch of meanness in some of the things he said. Totally. (laughs) And so we're going to hear some of that in a few seconds. Um, And so what was he promoting here? Well, he had just released the album Cloud Nine after after a long hiatus from from recording, and it was a smash. It kicked off with a hit single, Got My Mind Set on You. Which was a cover version. Did you know that? It it was indeed. Um, And the sound of the album was very polished. And, and different from, from Harrison's earlier solo work, um, at least partly due to the production techniques of Jeff Lynne. Right, the ELO guy and a huge Beatles fan. So for mm. him, this was probably as big of a thrill working with George as it was for you to meet him. I'm sure. <laughs> and he and George had written some songs together. And as George tells it, the method they used was completely new to him. Normally I don't write with other people, but we worked on three songs together and it was quite interesting because normally the way I work is I write the song and the melody and the lyrics have it more or less completed maybe occasionally I've got one or two lyrics that need finishing but more or less completed before I put the track down with Jeff um, we tend to figure out the the tune and the chords but have no idea how the melody or the lyrics are going to be and just see what happens that way that was quite interesting like we had completed backing tracks with no melody and no lyrics. Ah, seems an unusual yeah, way Yeah, and work. I said, well, you know, I've got a few ideas. What, what are you thinking of? He says, oh, well, it's about three tunes. This could go about three <laughs> different ways. It's sort of interesting. You leave your options open till uh, the final vocal session. I mean, when you've been writing songs for 25 years, is it not unusual to suddenly change your, your whole approach to making a record? No, I mean, I, I still wrote, um, I, I forget 
eight or nine tunes on the album. The traditional way? Yeah, more or less. You know, just maybe a couple of lyrics here and there that weren't finished, but more or less the same. Yeah. I mean, judging from, from looking at I, Me, Mine, it looks like you tend to write the song with very few revisions and then just go with it. But I gather Jeff Flynn works the other way, that he tends to go over things many times. Well, I don't know. Do you mean because you heard a demo of I, Me, Mine? Or no, I was looking at the book, actually. Yeah. And looking at the way the lyrics well, were Well, some were songs are like that. Some songs just come out and remain the same. Others go through a few changes. But um, with Jeff, it's interesting because we'd be writing and then we'd get to the middle part and we'd write, start doing the middle bit and then he'd already be back on the bit we'd just finished saying, trying to change a little here and a little there. It's very good. So, Tom, at the time of the interview, the song that was the single was called When We Was Fab. Which oh, was I remember that. Fantastic tribute to his days as a Beatle, well, both lyrically and sonically. Right, that's so interesting to me because, uh, and it is fascinating because he did when we was fab and he did all those years ago the tribute to john lennon yeah but it always struck me as like he was the one that was least impressed about being a beetle and so it was always a little bit the most surprising to me when he was doing the most loving tributes to either john lennon or being a beetle so i found that song particularly when we was fab i'm kind of going it does he really feel this way but obviously he did he wouldn't have put it onto uh onto an album if he didn't well, have you read I, Me, Mine? No, his, I have his not. His autobiography? No. It came out a long time ago, and there is actually a very cool, new, enhanced edition that came out a, a few years ago. Um, and he talked about the experience of being in the Beatles, and it was dark. I mean, he described it as a virtual prison. Wow. It, completely in contrast to those of us who were kids when it happened, you know, with the the pillow fights and the cheeky press conferences mm-hmm. and them coming down onto the tarmac off of planes waving at the crowd that was just what we saw but mm-hmm. what went on behind was um it was dark and i just wonder if over time maybe the edge of those dark memories gets softened and yes you remember well it's like anything you remember the good stuff right that's for sure Okay, so here he's talking about When We Was Fab. Was it amusing to go back and try to recreate some of those sounds using modern technology oh, yeah. when they had originally been created on like, four-track machines trying, and whatnot? Trying not to use modern technology ah. is probably more like it. It's interesting because I particularly like the sound of a cello, you know, a real cello. I don't mean an emulator. Mm. Uh, this, this is nice, you know, get this guy, get a real cellist along and get him to play the part. It was some of those sounds which um, you know, nobody's really thought about since the late 60s, you know, little bits of phasing and little backwards bits and the, vo- the vocal sound on the, the backing voices, you know, those kind of parts. It was, it was great fun, really. I was amazed when I read uh, George Martin's book, All You Need Is Ears. At Especially as he's gone deaf. <laughs> Has he? <laughs> so I hear, yeah. That's going to it be a production be a rough. Nasty rumor, though, Devil's Radio. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was surprised well, at some of the well, just the, the sort of low-tech means that you made some oh, of those records. Was yeah. I've got this machine in in uh, my house. I bought off EMI for about three pounds sterling. It's a big machine, like this big, and it was a mono machine, but it had this sort of speed thing on it, like a very speed. We did similar. Yeah, it was. I think it just gave us the uh, replay head. That was the thing we did. Um, remember paperback writer? Paperback, mm. paperback, 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 writer, writer, writer. Yeah. It's that machine. And when you look at it, it's like ancient. You know, this, it looks like it's got an oven in the bottom of it. It's just 
antique. It's wonderful, really. I mean, even our last album was only eight track. Abbey Road. Right. One forgets that because yeah. in the next few years after that time, technology just exploded mm. so much. We used to do a lot of stuff, uh, four track Sgt. Pepper, mm. and each one of us would have one fader each, full treble, full bass, full on. That's the way to do it. <laughs> so that's full-on Beatles geek stuff for sure like all that information about low-tech gear and so mm -hmm. on but you know of course I was drinking it in <laughs> um, and I asked him about some of the studio experimentation on Beatle albums uh, also in George Martin's book he talked about the making of uh, being for the benefit of Mr. Kite with chopping up all these bits and pieces of yeah. famous pieces of music and stuff. little loops to make, make up the foreground sounds and stuff like that is that like an early version of sampling? I suppose so. The first one we did on you know, was a track, I think, on Rubber Soul called uh, Tomorrow Never Knows. And we all made up little abstract sounds on our home tape machines. And then you just cut a piece out of it, stick it together uh, into a loop, and then put it on the machine and around the playback head. And we had to hold it with a pencil, you know, to keep it tight. And we had all these things on different machines, and then we'd mix them all in to the record. You know all those. Do you know that song? Mm -hmm. Oh, very well. All that stuff. You started out playing guitar, and then obviously branched into playing Indian instruments. Did you, in between, experiment with other kinds of? Instruments? Well, there was a period in the '60s we all bought Stockhausen records and, and stuff, and went, you know, a bit avant-garde, avant-garde clue. <laughs> but uh, it didn't last long, really. Although some of it's in the uh, Beatle records, like I say, Tomorrow Never Knows, and a few things like Number Nine, you know, it had a little wacky sort of avant-garde stuff. I, I read somewhere that uh, in your first experimentations with using a volume pedal... that Couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. Couldn't tap my foot and play at the same time. So what did <laughs> you do? I was in the Buddy Rich band. <laughs> <laughs> now, really, I, uh, I couldn't really get that to sound right. On one track, I forget which one it is, about Rubber Souls. Sound the word, maybe? I just had John kneeling down, and as I played it, he just did it on the guitar. Some players can do that. They can play and use the little finger around the volume control. I was never very good with machinery. Oh, my God, that's a great clip. My favorite line is avant-garde, avant-garde a clue. <laughs> no, I know, he's just such a, like a, a jokester. I know. And isn't it always funny when a really, really big artist mentions a song and asks you if you know it? Do you know Tomorrow Never Knows? Of course we know Tomorrow Never Knows, well, right? Did you notice that he attributed it to Rubber Soul? So and he was wrong. And it's about on that. revolver. That's great, but you know it, they don't think about their discography the way we the, do. The way we do. We know, you know, that they yeah. released. Uh, they recorded 144 songs. I think that's what it was, and 14 albums. Right, and it's crazy that we know that stuff and they don't. At the time of this interview, the Beatles had recently been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, Mick Jagger, and a bunch of others got together and jammed on I Saw Her Standing There. And the induction speech was done by Mick. I want to ask you about uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. First of all, what that presentation uh, meant to you. Well, I must say, it didn't mean anything to me until I got there. Because 
you know, it's just some ideas somebody had, and you know, it's only been two or three years. It didn't really mean that much to me, but somebody said, you know, it mightn't seem like much now, but it is history, and you'll enjoy it. So I went along, and I was glad I went. Had a great night after everybody settled down. It was a bit hectic, and uh, it was fantastic just to see all those people and little Richard and you know all the guys there. Really enjoyed it, but now as I've got my little statue that says the Beatles Hall of Fame, and I'm sure as it goes more into the future, you know, it's going to be something which I'm glad, certainly glad I didn't miss it. Are you saddened that Paul McCartney wasn't able to appear? Uh, for him, I'm, uh, it's a pity he missed it because he would have had a good time. You know, and it was nice to see people saying, "Well, after all that we've done, you know." That's all it was, really. Get the lads here, give them a pat on the back, and give them the medal. And it's a shame he missed it because he contributed so much to it. But it didn't spoil our night. We still had fun without him. Did you ever have any worry that something like this that would make you feel like you were being relegated to the past when you're in fact trying to create vital new well, music I think, right now? I, I think that could you could feel that if you hadn't done anything for years, you know. Right. But. Um, you know, I'm still around, I'm still chugging on, I'm still having fun. I don't. I think even if I hadn't had a new album out, I'd still enjoy the idea. Because you don't always have to be in the public eye, really, to exist, you know. Okay, Christopher, he just said the best line I've ever heard from any really, really famous rock star. Mm-hmm. And that is... You don't have to be in the public eye to exist. That's amazing. I know. What an epitaph. And huh? it is, you know, he had a very zen quality about him, yeah. although even in his even though he had a lot of zen moments, he had a lot of very unzen moments, but there was something, you know, where he was always searching for inner peace and outer peace. And you know, as a star, as someone who's so used to fame, coming to terms with the fact that you don't always have to be in the public eye to exist is a very important thing for anybody to learn, whether it's George Harrison in the 60s, 70s, or 80s, or whether it's Shawn Mendes and Justin Bieber nowadays. Mm. You know, I wanted to talk about um, some of the things that at the time were happening um, with songs from their catalog, because there was all sorts of questions about sales of the catalog to Michael Jackson. Were they going to be able to use songs in commercials? And, you know, Beatle fans were aghast at the idea. Right. So I took the opportunity to ask him about that. And he pointed out that they didn't control a lot of the things that they wrote. We talk about that, and then it got funny. That was in the days when they said, oh, sign this, we'll publish your song, and you sign it, and then later you find out they actually stole it off you. Would you ever go back and re-record any of those songs? Uh, if I Needed Someone or Tax Man or something like that? I don't know. There's... It's easier to write a new one, yeah. really. How did you feel when you heard the McCartney versions of the old songs on uh, Broad Street? I think they were okay. I didn't notice that they were new versions. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I only watched it once. I quite liked it, but I don't really... I remember dancing, all that one about ballroom dancing and stuff. I don't remember the old ones. He said that he wanted to tackle some of the other old songs, including possibly some of John Lennon's songs, like uh, Beautiful Boy and Imagine. Does that surprise you that he would do that? Paul? Yeah. Maybe because he ran out of good ones of his own. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now we've got that on record. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's true. Oh, my God, nice shot. You know what's so funny about that? You can hear 
the Much Music studio audience <laughs> laughing and chortling conspiratorially when he says Paul's run out of good songs. Well, hey, people laugh, and then he, he sort of shrugs, and he goes, oh, it's true. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. So that clip yeah. that you posted on YouTube probably a few years ago, mm-hmm. did that become something? Oh, it be- went viral. It, yeah. it, if you look it up under George Harrison Talks About Paul McCartney, there's around two and a half million views. <laughs> I know. It's crazy, huh? And by the way, your long hair, I, you know, normally we would make fun of the way we look in the 1980s. You mean when hair, we was fab? When we was fab. Your long hair looks great on you. Why, thank you, Tom. Yes, yes. Um, the video for fab um, was done by the directing team of Godly and Cream, um, who were just smoking hot in those days. Right, but they're originally from 10CC, and then they had that song, Cry. Mm-hmm. You don't know how to ease my pain. Sorry. Wow. Again, I'm singing. Um, and they had done videos, big ones, for Duran Duran, The Police, Peter Gabriel, and wow. others. Yeah. And um, George, in his own amusing way, talks about the conversations that led up to the making of the When We Was Fab video. I wanted to ask about, about uh, the videos. Um, the Fab video is so entertaining. I mean, we, it's one of those ones you just can't wipe yeah. the smile off your face. Did you have a good time making it? It was very nice. I was a bit nervous because Godly and Cream are a couple of loonies, especially... Yes lol mm-hmm. and uh, they're very sweet but I wasn't sure if they knew exactly what they were doing and uh, I found out they they knew sort of 90% what they were doing and the other 10% was a bit of a grey area but it was very good very funny did they pitch you on an idea and say we've got this great idea no I asked think? them to come up with an idea play the song uh, I said just go home and smoke something and listen to this <coughs> and come up with an idea and they came up with that idea and then after a few days they started panicking they said it's not going to work it's not going to work and they tried to get out of it and I said don't panic now because I had to do it you see I had three four days before Christmas it had to be done so I said just go for a walk in the garden have a cup of tea calm down and then I'll talk to you in an hour and I talked to them in an hour and he said oh yeah I think it'll be okay you know Good. I love it. You know, you can see how <laughs> Godly and Cream were, you know, starting like they're creative guys and they're very excited and they have an idea. And then all of a sudden it becomes crunch time and they get nervous and they start to freak out. And it's George who says, go off and smoke something, walk around a little bit, come back, you'll be fine. And he's right. I don't know if I'm allowed to tell this story on radio or not. Okay, excellent. Um, but when they came to visit much... They didn't have to go off and smoke something. (laughs) They only waited until the video rolled. And then their manager came with this foil ball. Wow. And and yeah, the interview devolved rapidly. (laughs) It was a long interview, and I mean, it got just nutty. Wow. Mm -hmm. So they became very different very quickly. Yes. There was an (laughs) altered reality. (laughs) So at the very end of the interview, I wanted to know what was next. And George gave a hint of something very cool that did come to pass. I have to quickly ask you, uh, future plans. Are you going to do a new record or are we going to have to wait another five years? Uh, No, I don't think to wait five years. I'm waiting to see possibly to do something. I mean, I shouldn't really say this because they don't know about it, but I'd like to do something, not just a solo album for myself. I'd like to try and get involved with maybe Jeff Lynne and maybe Eric Clapton and do something together new like that, just a one-off. Or maybe just Jeff and I. If not, I'll do one on my own again. A new band in the making here? The Traveling Wilburys. 
<laughs> and a tour? But don't tell anybody. Oh, that's so interesting because he, he talks about Eric Clapton, mm-hmm. but then he says traveling Wilburys. And, and they didn't exist they then. They didn't exist then. So obviously he had that name in, in the back of his mind. But do you remember how the Wilburys came into, how that name came? No. Do you know? Okay. So it used to be, and I think it was him and Jeff Lynne. They said, oh, that mistake. There was a mistake right there. And Jeff Lynne would say, we'll bury it in the mix. We'll bury. We'll bury (laughs) it in the mix. So in other words, Uh. don't worry about that. You you won't hear it. I'll turn up the guitar and you won't hear that dropped beat or whatever. Mm. So it was one of those guys came up with the phrase will bury as in we will we will bury it in the mix and that's where that word came from wow cool song facts from tom jokic ladies that's and great. gentlemen that's great but it is amazing that he mentions the traveling Wilburys there that is one of my favorite interviews and like i said he looks great he looks happy he looks a little bit sly in some of his comments where he knows he's stirring it up george harrison on famous lost words Christopher, when you said I've got an interview with Bill Wyman, <laughs> quietly my inner voice said, oh, really? So what? <laughs> How wrong can one man be? Indeed. So I've heard these clips, and they are excellent, like just crazy good, the kind of stuff you dream about when you put together a show like this. So let's get started. Looking back, it is one of my favorite interviews that I've ever done. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that, let's face it, when somebody wants to interview one of the Rolling Stones, Bill Wyman, even when he was a member of the band, yes. was not going to be the first person you'd call. No, he or would request. be. He would be fit, probably fourth or fifth on the list, right? To be honest, yeah. he would be. But he has a perspective mm-hmm. unlike anyone else in the band, and much of that is revealed in the course of these upcoming clips, for sure. So, set the wayback machine for July of 1985. <laughs> I was in London to cover Live Aid, of course, and I had an opportunity to speak with Bill, who had just released a side project called Willie and the Poor Boys. Now, this was a collection of rock and roll oldies from the early 50s, and it featured people like uh, Jimmy Page, Paul Rogers, Charlie Watts, and others. And it was a benefit for the arms uh, outfit, and that was the action research for multiple sclerosis. If right. you remember Ronnie Lane, That's their, right. their good friend, had... had uh, suffered from that and was uh, was part of setting up that organization. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Wyman was at his King's Road apartment, and when we arrived, it was just him, just casual as could be, just buzzed us in, and you're thinking, oh, it's Rolling Stones, there's going to be like, yeah. a team of people surrounding. No. And he was totally engrossed in the England and Australia cricket match. Wow. To the point that I could hardly get him to turn his head away from him. We finally had to turn the TV off to do the... <laughs> yeah, for sure, because he doesn't look like he's watching a uh, a game when he's talking to you. And no, these, he yeah. wasn't. And he was so easygoing. He laughed a lot and shared, I would say at times, maybe more than he intended. Oh, yeah, there's one point, <laughs> And you know what? He actually says, uh, maybe we shouldn't be talking about this, but we're going to be talking about that. Well, there was another moment, too, and I, I realized that it was it was recorded only in my memory because uh-huh. uh, we were talking later on about the Ed Sullivan show and, and seeing, for me, seeing the Stones for the first time. And he said when they came to uh, shoot the show, they came in the back of the Ed Sullivan Theater, I guess in a limo or some kind of car, and they had to get out and run from where the car could stop to the back door, to the stage door, and there was all these kids. And so the kids started chasing them, you know, like Hard Day's Night style. And I guess they sort of raced up with all these kids literally right behind them, and they got to the door, and the security guard, assuming that they were just five of the kids, 
wouldn't let them oh, in. that's so funny. So Keith cold-cocked him. They stormed he, over past him, slammed the door behind them, and went into the show. That's hilarious. So, <laughs> <laughs> wow, if you can get knocked out by Keith Richards, you're, so. you're not much of a security guard. <laughs> Anyway, I talked with him about the uh, impact of seeing the Stones for the first time in the Ed Sullivan Show and how the image contributed to the overall impact. Everybody thought we'd created, or Andrew Oldham had created an image for the Stones, that we were like that when he met us for the first time. When we were like that because we didn't have money for stage uniforms and the same coloured guitars and, the, and uh, the same hair and everything. We just went on the stage where we came off the street, you know. We just used to get out of the van, you know, or out of the tube station or the bus or whatever we arrived in and just go straight on the stage. But there seemed to be this absolute disdain for the audience that was projected at the time, and it was, it well, was, it was so different. A, we were really playing for ourselves, that's why. And we, we always said, if the audience is not receptive tonight, I won't say the word. <laughs> we can be, but forget it. We use it as a rehearsal. And we used yeah. to sit on stools, rusty old stools which we carried around in the back of the van and drink beers and smoke. And it was unheard of in those days. We had the hair. We used to smoke on stage. We used to drink on stage. I used to chew gum on stage, which used to, used to offend so many people. When, when we did TV shows later, they used to ask me particularly not to chew gum on the stage, on the, on the TV. I mean, in those days... And we never wore uniforms. We were the first band that never wore a uniform on stage, you know. And now it's so accepted. But then it was like uh, unthinkable that you would present yourself to the public without wearing a uniform. But when you were on the Ed Sullivan show, I mean, playing for hundreds of millions of people potentially, you must have been concerned about the impact and the, you know, how well, well that would be a success or not. That was two years after we started, actually, which is a long time in this business. Right. And we had kind of tied it up a bit, and without being totally conform conforming, we had kind of smartened up a bit. Because it was nice to buy nice clothes as well, see, once you had the money. Yeah. You did want to wear a nice jacket and a great pair of boots or whatever, you know. So you, you did a bit, but you never strayed too far from that casual look, you know. Although now, when you look, it looks pretty tame, but in those days, it what was quite sensational that is really amazing because he's saying they were the first band to basically drink on stage smoke cigarettes on stage and not have uniforms on tv but you think about that era and i mean we all can picture the beatles in their matching collarless sort of nehru jacket outfits and all of that but all of those bands whether it was you know freddie and the dreamers or jerry and the pacemakers or cliff richards and the shadows they all had the matching outfits they were right. suits right sure they were tailored and they were set up for stage. And the Rolling Stones went, I don't think so, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I asked about work on the upcoming Stones album, which came eventually to be called Dirty Work. 20 years later and the Stones are still rolling, amazing yeah. as it seems. Uh, how's work on the new LP going? It's good. We was in Paris. Um, started off slow, but that's because we haven't played together for a while and we live in different countries. So it's like, hello, mate, you know, what you've been doing, how's the wife, you know, the kids... Oh, the kid passed, the, you know, some tests at school, you know, and you get all that jive dealt with. And then you just sit around and jam for three weeks or something. Play a lot of old early blues and 50s Eddie Cochran stuff and Muddy Waters blues. You just play anything that comes into anybody's head. And you just jam and get your chops back in. And then you start laying down rough, rough ideas for songs. And, and then you just go through those and then you slowly pick out and play... Uh, 
odd demos more and more and more and eventually you end up with about 20 sort of good tracks you know really good tracks that you've worked hard on and from that comes the album and we're at the stage now we just broke in Paris uh, about three weeks ago and after about four months uh, we've got about 20 I would say just over 20 tracks which we're just uh, tidying up and uh, overdubbing uh, in the next few weeks we'll start and that'll be finished in September wow I love I love him going yeah well you know we had to get past the you know how how are you how are the kids yes. kind of thing yeah and you can see it that that's what they do they they jam out all those early blues songs as a way of kind of greasing the wheels again and um of course very recently that led to an album of those songs mm-hmm. that they were playing those songs and went hey this stuff sounds pretty good yeah why don't we do that instead of original stuff because there's so much pressure on them now after all these years mm-hmm. so it became blue and lonesome right yes that's the way to do it mm-hmm. well talk about realistic <laughs> bill describes the band and their singer as competent <laughs> <laughs> that just staggered me. But then he goes on to talk about the magic that makes the sound of the Rolling Stones. The segment you'll notice starts when I'm asking him about new influences. Have your musical influences changed over the years? I'm thinking specifically, I think back to like Black and Blue and that area. It sounded like you and Charlie started to listen to more island music. Is that possible? A little more Charlie of Sly did. and Robbie? Charlie, the thing? Yeah, Charlie and Mick particularly. But your playing seemed to get Kate. funkier too. I mean, I think of Miss You, obviously, and other things. Yeah, but uh, Billy Preston influenced me there with piano playing. Uh, you know, you always uh, get ideas from other people's performances, and if you hear Funky Nassau or something, one of those songs, you see, you think, oh, yeah, you do get influenced in that way, but not too much. You, you tend to be the same rhythm section as you always were, in a way. You try to keep down to basics you don't go well over the top and none of us are great musical technicians you know we're very competent players probably of a certain level uh, and we're not particularly great musicians nobody in the stones and we don't have a particularly great singer but the point is when the band gets together as a unit something happens musically which is very rare I think in music because you don't hear that from other bands many bands that try to copy the stones never quite sound exactly right it's because we're not precise we're not musically perfect and the the rhythm kind of goes like that rather than like that you know like disco and all that stuff you know like mechanical stuff it kind of wobbles and it's kind of nice and then you've got a guy who's not particularly a great singer but he's an incredible performer and he's got a lot of soul in his voice and that, you know. Uh, I'm not saying he can't sing, because he can, you know, but he's not what you'd call a... You know what I'm saying? The same yeah, as, of course. Same as I'm not an incredible bass player, he's not an incredible singer, but he has something magic about his singing. And, and so it all kind of happens within the members of the band rather than how good technically you are. Oh, dear. Not a particularly great singer, he says about Mick Jagger. Fantastic. <laughs> but it's in the shape of a compliment. Right. But he's saying he has something that no one else has. I love how he talks about the feel of the band, the wobble, 
as mm-hmm. he calls it. And I understand that completely because you think like Keith on stage, for example, I mean, clearly he's taking his time references from Charlie. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where it all begins and ends as far as like the, he's the anchor for the band. But Keith can play so far behind the beat that it adds this elasticity to the music. I'm sorry, I'm geeking out as a player a bit, but I gotcha. Um, and 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 Bill just nails the description of that and why that works and why it's so unique to them. Well, you know, you listen to a song like "Tumbling Dice." It almost sounds like a demo. Like you you're going, like how did this make it on the record? And then you're you're a minute into the song, and you were wrong all along. It has a great groove, right? If you thought it sounded messy then you realize that's the beauty of the song and that greasy kind of dirty, wobbly uh, groove is what makes it great, you know? That's fantastic. But it is great to hear one of the architects of that sound Mm -hmm. talking about it. Um, I wondered if they had considered playing Live Aid. We were asked, you know, because I know Bob very well and uh, we sympathized with the cause, but we were in the middle of the studios recording in Paris um, and then we were going to try to break because it was very tiring working all night and sleeping all day and trying to keep things together otherwise, all the other things that go on. And so um, we had a meeting in the studio and uh, we decided that we would not do it, you know, because of commitments and where we would be at different parts of the country and it would have meant everybody getting somewhere and rehearsing for a week and falling around and it was a bit too complicated to do and we thought there was enough people on it anyway you know um uh, we're totally for the thing but it was just not the right time to do it so we kind of sent a letter and said we apologize but we can't make it but best of luck and then two weeks later mick says i'm doing it so we had a big row with him because you know you better not use that <laughs> no, it came out to go from here. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> it came out that um, because if you use it, like it's going to get exaggerated in press. Oh, I love it! <laughs> I love it. They had a big row with Mick. Well, over I, his I sort of think there's a statute of limitations on. <laughs> you know, not revealing that. Yes. He had the, he, of course, he at the time says, "Oh, you can't use that." Yeah. Wow. 30 odd years later for sure you're long gone bill like like he's still alive but he's not he's been hasn't been in the band forever yeah wow that's crazy. <laughs> funny <laughs> um now this is an interesting um topic that he gets to later in the interview um because he was really the archivist he's you <laughs> okay. as you go through the wonderful archives that we have that make up this show he created an archive of the Rolling Stones, and he describes in some detail exactly what consisted of that archive. And this, of course, eventually, all of this became a book called Rolling with the Stones. Oh, yeah. But it was many years later. He, this was 85. That book didn't come out till 2002. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, let's hear that. I'm working on the book. I have been for years and years. Obviously, but it's an ongoing thing. But now I'm getting quite refined on it, and... Uh, by this time next year, I hope to have the first manuscript of the first book, The Stones' uh, history and my life in it, you know, um, which will be the 60s. Can't put the whole thing in. If I do one of the whole thing, it's going to be like Encyclopedia Britannica, you know, 47 volumes, you know, <laughs> buy one every month kind of thing. They can't do that. So I'm going to put one out of the 60s first. How did you retrieve it? I mean, did, did you take notes when you were on the road or keep a diary? I kept diaries, yeah. I kept diaries before I joined the Stones, you know, from oh. 1960, 61. 
so it covers that whole period and um, what I was doing I was because I had a little band and you know and I, I, I tried to keep everything as I went along you know kind of programs and posters and press clippings and letters from fans and so on and photos and cassettes of radio shows and before video and um, and all the records and all the demos you know it's, it's an enormous amount of stuff and there aren't many bands that have been around for 20 years where there is a 20 year history and by the time I finished it it might be 30 because it would be the 60s the 70s and the 80s trilogy <laughs> yes <laughs> you can tell he has so much pride in what he's collected and it is amazing that it took more than 15 years for that book to become a reality well, the reviews of it always talked about how obsessive he was, but <laughs> I think this reveals it. Anybody who's keeping like hotel receipts from 1965, it's mm -hmm. unbelievable, huh? Yeah, it sure is. As was often the case in speaking with the elder statespersons of rock in those <laughs> days, uh, Bill Wyman's impression of music video was less than favorable. It's disappointing in many ways because now you have new bands coming on, and the most important thing is the video. It doesn't matter. The video can sell a very mediocre song and a performance by a band who don't really play anyway. They use, uh, lots of bands use um, computer techniques like the Fairlight and, or producers uh, like uh, Horn, uh, do it like Frankie Goes Hollywood. Lots of bands don't even play on their records, you know, and there's lots of musicians in bands that can't play music, you know. I mean, Guys from very big bands that are happening now, I won't mention names, so I'll get told off if someone will put a gun on me, um, come down stone sessions and say, yeah, let's have a go on your bass. Sure, you know, they're just jamming a blues or something, pick it up, they can't even play a blues, you know, they can't play physically. And, and you find out that they use session musicians, you know, real funky back, black bass player to play bass and you've got the, we'll leave, the yeah. real hip drummer, you know. And they leave, and they go to a club, and they come back, and... The track's done. Exactly. And they get their picture on the cover. And what are the kids now? They see a video that's made for a fortune. Uh, the guys are there, like, you know, it's like that Andrew Ridgely of Wham, you know. You see him playing the bass on the, on the video, and there's not even a bass on the record. What, you is know, synth bass? But if you're a mu yeah, but yeah. If you're a musician, he don't play synth either. But if you're a musician, you're so aware of that when you see it, which the average kid in the street isn't. Yeah. And it doesn't bother him in the least. They just like the look of his face anyway and what clothes he's wearing. But it's a bit sad because then they go on the road and they don't sell tickets because they get very disappointed. The kids, you know, listening to 24 track tape playback with vocals and live vocals maybe or something. It's um. And kids spend a lot of money buying tickets for shows in England, particularly, where they see a whole two-hour show where there's not any live music being performed whatsoever. It's all mimed, lip-sung, like, like on television, to their hit records. Yeah. I mean, that's not what music's about for me, you know, um, and it never has been. Music's always been a participation between the audience and the band, and it's been a lot of fun and good times. Um, and it's proven in the fact now that bands that are playing real live and, and great, like Paul Young I saw in, in Paris, very good. He, he uses electronic techniques, but so what? Uh, Bruce Springsteen, look what's happening to him. Tina Turner, all the bands, Stones when they go out, you know, The Who. Bands that go out and play live really blow it all away, you know, if, if people are aware. But a lot of kids don't even know they're not playing live. 
I know it's sad, isn't it? Yeah. So video does affect uh, people in that way, I think. <laughs> okay. Well, there's a little bit of get off my lawn in that uh, segment. But, you know, he's right for the most part. But, you know, uh, Tim talking about the fact that these artists didn't play on their own records and they got session musicians, that happened a lot in the 60s. That happened even with the Beach Boys and with the Grassroots and with, I think, even with the Hollies. They didn't play on some of their own songs. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong there, but I'm fairly certain that the session musicians ruled the roost on so many bands in the 60s. And it is funny that he's talking about it as though it's something new in the 80s when uh, a lot of these artists are becoming popular. Well, I sort of feel like there was a bit of opportunism on Bill's part, too, in the sense that um, here was an opening for him to, to yank out one of his favorite rants of the moment. Yeah. Because remember, he went not only from musicians who don't play on their own records, to musicians who can't play. Right. <laughs> at all. Right. <laughs> but it's entertaining. Absolutely. And that's what we're here for. Like I said earlier, you know, Bill Wyman would not be on my list of people to interview, mm. but he's so charming in this, and he looks and he sounds good. Like, he sounds very lucid and all that. Yeah. I never would have expected that from him. I had a... Uh, 45 of his. I still have it. It's called Je Suis on Rockstar. <laughs> what? And it is so, oh God, the lyrics are just ridiculous. Uh, the chorus is Je suis on Rockstar, je avais en residence, je habitais là <laughs> dans la south de France. Like oh, it's so yikes. bad. And trust me, I am doing it justice. We have to look that one up. No, we don't. Okay, and that does it for this week's edition of Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic. And I'm Christopher Ward. Don't forget, you can get caught up with past episodes of Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app. You can also follow us on Facebook, Famous Lost Words, and on Twitter, at Famous Lost Pod. Thanks very much to Adam Karsh for producing the show. Take care. Talk to you next time.